Father God, please would you speak through my weak and foolish words that we might hear your voice. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you would touch lives, touch hearts, touch minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last a thousand years, Christianity has had a privileged position in this country. It's been the established religion of our nation. Our monarchs have been crowned by our church leaders. We have bishops in the houses of houses of parliament, and many of our laws have been rooted in biblical truths. But that is changing rapidly. I predicted about 25 years ago that in 100 years' time, Christians would be some of those few strange people who, among other things, believed in lifelong monogamous partnership between one man and one woman. I stick by that prediction, apart from the hundred-year bit. And I'd make another prediction. In 50 years' time, Christians will be that strange group of people who make babies the old-fashioned way. The new normal will be that sperms and egg are first frozen, then chosen, possibly genetically engineered, and implanted into a uterus. Sex will be purely recreational. And we will live in a society which will think that we are socially irresponsible not to give the tablet to our 79-year-old parent who is suffering from Alzheimer's. We face astonishing challenges. There's the population explosion. In the year 2000, there were 6 billion people on this planet. Today, there are almost 7 billion people. There's the development of technology. We've had to make up parenting as we go along. The rules that we laid down five years ago, when our now 19-year-old was 14, he was only allowed to go online on the computer in the main room, are meaningless to our now 14-year-old with smartphones and 24-hour access to the internet. And how do we begin to cope with the idea of robotic bodies controlled by an implanted human mind? And perhaps as we face extraordinary change, we are tempted to despair. There's so much that we could disagree on, even on quite fundamental issues. We struggle to find agreement on what the Bible teaches about the roles of men and women. How do we address bioethical issues not even dreamt of 50 years ago? How is the Christian faith going to survive here in the West when our society has made the individual's freedom to live out their desires? It's God. Are we going to tear ourselves apart? Are we going to be rejected as irrelevant and reactionary? 
Or to put this another way, what will keep us united as we have to cope with issues that make today's divisive issues look like a stroll in the park? What will keep us firm when the privileges of power are stripped away from us and we face potential hostility and certain ridicule? My brothers and sisters, I'd like to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Whatever happens, says Paul, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Live lives worthy of the gospel, he says. In that way, says Paul, I know that you will stand firm in one spirit, that you will strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. I love that. What is consistent about what the church offered to the world in AD 50 with what we offer to the world today and what we will offer to the world in a thousand years' time if the Lord does not return before then? It is the gospel Paul defines the gospel in Romans 1.3 and very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15.3-5. It's the good news that 2,000 years ago, God became a human being in Jesus Christ. It's the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to the various disciples. The gospel, the good news of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, is at our very heart. It's the message which transforms us. When a person believes, when a man or woman, boy or girl, puts their trust in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, God changes our hearts. We become new people. We receive a new spirit. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It's the message which transforms us. It's the message which unites us. What do we have in common? Christ died for our sins. It's the great equaliser. We're forgiven sinners. There's nothing that you have done to earn forgiveness and acceptance by God. There's nothing you could have done. You are not saved because you are good or clever or significant. Forgive me. None of us is good enough or clever enough or significant enough. And we need to stop pretending that we are. In my previous church in, in Holloway, we shared the building for several years with another church, Victory Outreach. We met in the morning and evening, 
they met in the afternoon. They had a, a very effective ministry among drug addicts and prostitutes. On one occasion, at the end of our morning service, a teenager came in while we were having tea and coffee. I was talking to our church warden, Joyce, and he asked, came up and asked us, is this the church where the bad people go? Joyce immediately said, no, they meet in the afternoon. <laughs> I have to say I was a bit jealous and a bit put out. So I immediately added, as I said to him, but we're pretty bad. <laughs> the reason that we can come into the presence of God, the reason that we can begin to receive from him, the reason that we can become sons and daughters of God is because we're bad. But Jesus died for you and me. God knows us. He knows our deepest innermost secrets, the things that would make us die of shame if our closest friends knew about them. He knows how we have rebelled against him, lived to satisfy our desires and not his commands. But he still loves us. And he sent his son, Jesus. And because Jesus has died for us, we are forgiven. Because Jesus was crucified, we can become sons and daughters of God. My dear friends, if unity is to grow within our churches and between our churches, we need to live lives worthy of the gospel. We need to live as forgiven sinners. We do not need to prove ourselves. And we have nothing to prove. So we can get off our high horses about being better than the next, or deeper, or more sound, or more spirit-filled. You are a nobody who, because of Jesus, has become a somebody. I am a nobody who, because of Jesus, has been made somebody. Why should anybody show me respect? What have I done to deserve respect? All that I have, all that I am, all that I will be, is because of Jesus. There's something very attractive about people who know they are forgiven sinners. It's the beginning of a liberating humility. We do not need to set ourselves up above others. We're set free to love each other, to build the other up, to delight in them and who they are. We're free to rejoice when we see what others have, the, the success of others. We're happy to play second fiddle when others take the lead. And we're willing to kneel down like Jesus and to wash their feet, even when we disagree with them. The gospel transforms lives. The gospel helps us to be united. And it's the gospel message which helps us stand firm. Christ rose from the dead and appeared. He really did. They were there. They saw him. They ate with him. They touched him. Jesus rose from the dead. It's painful to watch a society turn its back on centuries of Christian teaching. It also hurts to lose privileges, to lose respect, and to realize that we've moved from being a moral majority to a missional minority. And maybe some of you have suffered because of your faith. 
But few of us have suffered in the way that many of our brothers and sisters in many countries have and are suffering simply because they confess Jesus Christ crucified and risen. I heard by our open doors of one believer in Eritrea, arrested at a Christian wedding reception along with the bride and groom and several of the other guests. They are beaten and imprisoned, simply because they are Christians. He said, for us as believers, it's not a matter of if we will be arrested, it's a matter of when. And Paul knew suffering for the name of Jesus. When he is converted and he hears what God is calling him to do, he has an astonishing commission. God says, uh, Jesus says, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. So when Paul had first come to Philippi to bring the gospel, he'd been arrested and imprisoned. But the remarkable thing is that we're told that while Paul and Silas are locked in the stocks in the innermost prison, they sing praise to God. And Paul is writing this letter while he is in prison. And do you notice the language that Paul uses here? It is quite astonishing. He says, for it has been graciously granted to you on behalf of Christ to have the privilege not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. Graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing, but of suffering. How can Paul possibly use that language? Only someone who has been there, who has suffered for Christ, has the real integrity and the authority to say those words. But he can say them because he has a hope. Christ has risen from the dead. Death has been conquered. What we experience here is nothing compared to the glory then. My dear friends, we face an incredibly testing time ahead of us. Christianity in the West will probably be written off. We are being moved from the centre to the edge. We will be regarded with at best amusement and at worst hostility. As we face the major issues that lie ahead of us, we will have to decide how to live in this brave new world that we are facing. Some will respond one way, others another. There is probably a right way, a God way, but none of us on our own will get it quite right. And we need to be gracious with each other, to remind ourselves that we are forgiven sinners. That is what it means to live a life shaped by the gospel, worthy of the gospel. But even if it does go dark, we have been given a treasure, a jewel that shines with unsurpassed brilliance. The darker it gets, the brighter that jewel will shine. And that jewel is the gospel. It's the message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's a message that will never change our need to change. It's about something that happened at one point in history, but it has a significance for all eternity. 
It is our banner, our standard, our colour. It is our centre, our heart, our purpose and our hope. It is what will shape our lives as forgiven sinners with the hope of resurrection. It is what will enable us to stand firm in the Spirit of God. It is what will hold us together as we strive side by side. We preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And to him be the glory. Amen.